Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Mr. Freely in the ABC original series Complete Savages, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Well, right now I'm trying to remember. Oh, yes, Complete Savages. Absolutely. Keith Carradine. Oh, yes, wow. Yes, that was a very short-lived uh, series. I believe it only aired for one season, unfortunately. Mel Gibson was the executive producer uh, on that series. In fact, I have some stories coming up about Mel Gibson. The most remarkable thing about Complete Savages is that Keith Carradine came up to me and was saying, uh, Stephen, uh, do you know uh, Ricky Phillips? Which was amazing to me because Ricky Phillips was the little boy who lived across the street from me. When I was four, five, six, seven, eight years old, he was my best friend and my playmate across the street. And I couldn't believe it. But as Ricky has grown, uh, he has become very close to the Carradine family. So I'd like to shout out a big hello to Ricky wherever you are now. My love to you and, and yours. You know, Stephen, uh, we had the chance to meet this past summer, uh, which is actually kind of a rare event. People might think that we're recording this in the same room, but in fact, we are across the country. I'm on the East Coast, and you're on the West Coast. Yes, And yes. Uh, you were in New York. What were you, you in New York to do, Stephen? Uh, that, yes. That wasn't just for the meetup. Uh, we, we met when I was doing Law & Order uh, SVU, or as my wife calls it, SUV, <laughs> SUV. Which, which is fitting because they have many SUVs in that show. But I, I was doing a, a crime drama there. And uh, boy, so many memories. You know, New York is a city that kind of leaves a mark on you. No matter where you are uh, in New York, so many memories come back of different times you were there over the years, over the many, many years. Uh, I remember uh, one time in New York, I was, oh boy, I was almost murdered. That was over on uh, 45th Street and 8th Avenue at 3 in the morning. That's another story for another day. Uh, almost robbed several times. But when, when I was in New York, David, I, I, it reminded me of an event that I actually prompted a thought of another event, which prompted another event. And it is crime-related, <laughs> crime my friend. Beth and I were robbed back in 1982, and we weren't just robbed, but our place was ransacked. I mean, everything they say in those movies on the Lifetime channel is true. The feelings of violation, the tears, the incredible fear, it's palpable. Because you've not only become a victim of a crime, but you've become the victim of a redefinition. You are no longer someone who is safe. After our robbery, Beth and I had trouble living in our home a couple of times we thought we would have to stay in a hotel until we felt safe again. And our fears were not helped by a friend of ours, Sharon, who told us a horrible story of what happened to a friend of her good friend, Patty, who lived in Ventura County. It was about the same time as the situation that Beth and I went through with a huge difference. Patty's friend came home late one night from a party and felt there was something wrong her husband opened the door, and right in front of them was their dog lying dead on the carpet. The woman knelt down, picked up the dog, started crying before she realized that the entire home in the background had been tossed, just like 
ours was, the husband grabbed a baseball bat from the front hall closet and started to make his way through the house. And as he made his way down the hall, the phone began to ring. His wife ran to answer it. It was a neighbor telling him, get the hell out of the house. The robber was still inside. The wife screamed for her husband. They ran outside. They waited for the police to come. The police arrived. They found the robber. It was a black man hiding in the back bedroom closet. He was bleeding profusely, and three fingers of his right hand had been severed. The police followed the trail of blood back through the house, and they found it led to the front hallway where the dog had been lying. The police examined the dog and made the grisly discovery that the man's fingers were lodged in the dog's throat and that the dog had choked to death trying to defend his family. Well, let me tell you, that story walloped me good. I couldn't get the image out of my mind. But the very next day, I had to fly to New York in preparation for the start of rehearsal in Hartford for the wake of Jamie Foster, Beth's play. Well, I stayed with an old college roommate, Jim McClure, and had a whirlwind tour of seeing all the old friends in New York that first night. And one of them was the wonderful actress Margot Martindale. Margot, of course, heard what Beth and I just went through with the robbery. And she shook her head and said, I feel so f sorry for you guys, but it could have been worse. A friend of hers had a friend out in Long Island. And they came home from a party. And they found their apartment had been completely ransacked. But worst of all, their dog was lying dead near the front door. And they came inside and the phone rang and it was a neighbor who said, get the hell out of there. The burglar is still in the house. And they ran outside and they waited for the police. And when they got there, they went room by room. And eventually they found the intruder. It was a Puerto Rican bleeding to death in the back closet. Pause. You get it. It's the exact same story I heard 24 hours earlier. I waited for Margot to finish the tale. I watched as tears sprung to her eyes as she revealed the dog had three Puerto Rican fingers stuck in its throat. I told her I had just heard the same story 3,000 miles away with a different villain. Margot didn't believe me at first. Eventually, she surrendered to the fact that we were both victims of the notoriously unreliable friend of a friend. Yes. I admit it. This, <laughs> this was the first time I was suckered by an urban legend, yes. And Beth and I were more susceptible to believe in the story because we were so afraid. But in the end, the success or failure of this story was determined by our willingness to put someone in the closet. I think the trait to put a man in the closet runs deep in the human soul. I suspect this is true by observing myself every time I drive on the 405 freeway. On the freeway, I bear no love for any of my fellow humans. I yell out a variety of profanities and nastiness every time someone almost runs me off the road or drives too slowly. I instantly become a sexist, a racist, an ageist, but interestingly enough, not a homophobe. You can never tell someone's sexual proclivities just because they change lanes in front of you without signaling. I've even gone so far to be a baldest on the road, and I am bald. I remember once I was getting a haircut, and don't laugh. It's very hard to get a good haircut when you're bald. It's very easy to look like Bozo the Clown. 
and one false move by an unskilled barber and you could end up with the dreaded comb over. I was looking in the mirror at another man across the room getting his hair cut and I murmured conspiratorially to my barber, hey John, at least I'm not as bald as that poor son of a bitch. And John whispered back, hey pal, that's you. I was horrified. I put on my glasses and I realized I had been looking into a mirror that was looking into another mirror that was looking back at my own head. I had been castigating myself, confirming what I long suspected, that all prejudice is self-hatred in disguise. The good news is I think we're all born innocent. The bad news is eventually we all end up driving on the freeway. I'm lucky in that I still recall my innocence. The first black person I ever knew was probably the janitor at the medical building where my father worked. His name was Thomas, and he was the most friendly of grown-ups. I always wanted to go to work with my dad so I could visit with Thomas. He was always laughing. He would always put me on his lap and look admiringly at my toy train. I told him someday I wanted to live with him in Thomastown. And he laughed and he said, what's Thomastown? I said, isn't that where all the Thomases live? All the people who look like you? Thomas smiled a little and said, my name is Thomas, but people who look like me are called Negroes. And Stevie, I don't think you want to live in Thomastown. Someday you're going to want to live in Stevie Town. And I laughed and I played with my train some more. I felt one reason I had very little prejudice growing up was the generous nature of men like Thomas. And ironically, because Oak Cliff, where I grew up, was a white flight suburb of Dallas. There were almost no blacks that lived there, and it's hard to paint a target on something you never see. Still, race hatred was everywhere under the surface. Our school was Jefferson Davis Elementary. He was the president of the Confederacy, for those who have forgotten. There was a fishing store down the road from our home that was called KKK, which stood for Catch Him and Kill Him on Keist. And it wasn't even remotely considered offensive. It, it was considered a clever marketing ploy. At our school, the N-word was thrown around with regularity and jokes among the children, and I had no idea what it meant. One of the boys at school explained to me in a very nasty, laughing way that that was the name for what I had at one point called Thomas People. I remember I went home that day and walked up to our dear maid, Lenora, and said, Lenora, you're a nigger. She stopped her work and she whirled around. The swiftness of it scared me. She grabbed me by the arms and knelt down to my height. She looked me long and steadily and said, quietly, Stevie, where do you hear that? I told her, at school. And there was a moment in which an entire world seemed to pass silently between our eyes. I don't know what she wanted to say or what she wanted to do, but the, in the end, she just said, Stevie, you can never say that again. That's not a nice thing to call someone. Promise me. I promised her. I was ashamed I had said something bad to Lenora, who was the soul of kindness and decency. And I know my love for her was true because I've always kept my word and never called anyone that again. Not, not even on the 405 freeway. As a side note, Lenora was always full of joy and energy. There was never any quit in her. 
After she worked for us cleaning house, she started selling cosmetics door-to-door. Her business grew, and she became regional manager of her company. In the early 70s, she came back to visit and offered to buy our home in cash, the house, and every stick of furniture in it. She said she always wanted to own the home she worked in as a maid, as a sort of legacy for her life. And she bought it. And in her time, she bought 22 other properties, including apartments and restaurants. I visited her last year when I came to Dallas, and she still lives there in the house I grew up in with all of our furniture, except, unfortunately, for my horrible little bed that traveled with me to our next home. Lenora is still the soul of love and joy. Right after that teaching moment from Lenora, I had another one on the playground. Unlike Lenora, the lessons on the playground have no mercy. They're usually delivered with the gloves off, and there's no remedy for the hurts they leave. As I mentioned, we grew up in a white flight area of Dallas. There were no blacks in Oak Cliff at all at that time. One of my classmates in first grade was a very tall, for first grade, dark-skinned boy named Mike Frenelli. Some boys in our class were taunting Mike and throwing rocks at him. And Mike was running across the playground, holding his arms up, trying to protect his head and face. But they pursued, and they kept circling him. And he began screaming for them to stop, but his cries only made the attacks more vicious. No one intervened on his behalf. There were no teachers in sight. Mike kept running and dodging until finally he reached the chain-link fence at the perimeter of our school and had nowhere else to go. He turned to face his attacker, and with huge tears rolling down his cheeks, he yelled, But I'm not a nigger! I'm just Italian. All of the boys stopped, and one of his tormentors called back, Doesn't matter. You're all we got. And they threw their rocks. The attack on Mike taught me all I needed to know about cruelty. Cruelty isn't an act. It's a boundary. Cruelty never needs reason, only an opportunity. An opportunity doesn't begin when you pick up the rock. It begins when you put a man in the closet. It's one thing to have witnessed cruelty. It's another thing to understand it. But it's quite another to translate that understanding into not crossing the boundary. In case you haven't noticed, the boundary into cruelty is not like the boundary into Tibet. Cruelty is a very easy country to get to. No warning signs, no guards, no fences. You don't have to run looking both ways. You can take your time. You can stroll. I was a senior in high school. And like many seniors, we were subjected to taking physics. Our physics teacher had any number of traits that could have made him the subject of mockery. One, he was bald and wore a crooked toupee. Two, he had false teeth and kept clicking when he spoke. Three, he was probably gay. And four, he taught physics. One day in drama class, we got a note that our teacher would be late and I was to supervise. And everybody was laughing and acting up in anticipation at what wonders awaited them with me as their substitute teacher. I told the class to sit down with a very serious voice. And I left the room and I re-entered imitating our physics teacher. The class screamed with delight as I pranced over to the blackboard, straightening my invisible toupee. They were rolling in the aisles when I started having trouble with my upper teeth and started adjusting my palate. But what really stole the show was when I started a long, confusing monologue about physics. 
the class was shrieking. I had no idea why. I wasn't really dipping into my A material yet. And I started gesturing flamboyantly and turning to the blackboard. And then I stopped dead in my tracks when I noticed our physics teacher was watching me from the doorway. Pause. You have to realize this took me totally by surprise. The science wing was on the complete opposite side of the school. He just happened to hear all of the laughter in the hallway, came down to check it out. We made eye contact, but I knew in a heartbeat he had heard plenty. Instead of asking me to speak with him in the hallway, instead of turning around and walking away, he came into the drama room and sat down. He smiled at me and said, I think I've missed the beginning of the show. Perhaps you should start over so I can see the whole thing. The class went from laughter to shamed silence. I had two competing instincts, one to throw myself on the ground and beg for forgiveness, the other to run screaming into the street. I did neither. I walked outside the class. I re-entered as him. And I did the whole routine again as he requested. I did it in silence. No one laughed. No one breathed. It was one of those lessons of the schoolyard, one that had no mercy. In that moment, I became one of the boys looking into Mike Frenelli's eyes saying, I don't care. You're all we got. And then I threw my rock and I kept throwing it. It was senseless. And none of it happened because I hated gay people or that I even cared he was bald. It was as simple as the seduction of getting a laugh. And I had the opportunity. I crossed the border. All I had to do was put our teacher in the closet, so to speak. I don't feel it's an exaggeration to compare my ridicule of our teacher to the viciousness Mike suffered in the schoolyard. In Judaism, the murder of a reputation is one of the greatest acts of cruelty you can perform because there's no way to make restitution for it. In my mind, I will always see my teacher's eyes burning with shame and anger. I never made an apology. I felt there was none I could make. I read that he passed away last year, but not for me. Acts of cruelty have no expiration dates. The only way to escape my teacher's eyes now is through the hope of some kind of forgiveness. And if it's not to be, at least I found that regret is an honest companion. I've always found there to be two different types of fairy tales. They're the ones in which loyalty is rewarded with love and kingdoms are given to simple but honest souls. And then there are the perplexing ones. These are the ones in which the children are eaten and the treasures turned into straw and the princess is poisoned for a thousand years. Every night before I went to sleep, mom or dad would read me stories. And I never knew which type of story I would get. It was a crapshoot. The ratio of happy to horrible bedtime stories was only detectable by the frequency of my nightmares. Eventually, I became afraid of the dark. 
my surprising solution was to put another man in the closet. I created a monster that lived in my room. His name was I the Monster. I as an eyeball, not as in we need to send this child to a psychiatrist. I was terrifying to me, but occasionally he hinted that his task was not to threaten but to protect. He promised to come out of the closet whenever danger was near. One night when I was very young, I heard a noise that woke me up. I ran down to mom and dad's room for help or intervention if necessary. Mom awoke and told me not to worry. It was just a night noise. That didn't help. For all of you new parents out there, the explanation of night noise is not something that brings comfort. It was the kind of thing you find in one of the bad bedtime stories. Mom told me to go back to my room, go to sleep, nothing would hurt me. I was unconvinced. I went back, I pulled the covers up over my head, and that's when I heard I. He called my name. I began to cry. I forced the covers back down, and shaking with fear, I got up out of bed to investigate. I opened my closet door, but he wasn't there. And then I heard his voice behind me, and I turned. Nothing. And then I heard him say he had moved under the bed to be closer to me. But it was still no comfort. I was unsure as to whether I was my fear or my savior. I always wondered what happened to I. He was such a constant companion to me when I was three, four, five years of age, and it took a lot of energy and a lot of imagination to create and sustain him. And if you believe what scientists tell us, that energy cannot be created or destroyed, but it just changes form, what form did I change into? Where does our fear of the dark go? My guess is that somewhere in history, it turned into science, art, and religion. Science to weigh and measure the darkness, art to show us its beauty. And if the first two fail, there's always religion, telling us that the light is really all around us all the time. We just have to be able to believe in it to see it. And I think there is a fourth manifestation of fear of the dark. It's not so grand as the first three, but it's as real a science, and it's shaped the world as much as religion or philosophy. It is conspiracy. Conspiracy theories aren't so interested in finding the light. They take another approach. They jump into oblivion with both feet shouting, hey, the dark isn't so bad after all. Come on, follow me. Last one in is probably one of them. More than anything, conspiracy theories seem to be direct descendants of bad fairy tales. Conspiracies can disguise themselves as science or as history, but you can always spot them because their goal is never to reveal the truth, but only to reveal a villain. Once you name a villain, then you create the need for a hero, which usually turns out to be the person telling you about the conspiracy in the first place. The real danger of a conspiracy theory is not that it presents a false image of events. I mean, science does that all the time with no lingering ill effects. Science self-corrects and moves on. But a conspiracy theory undermines the human spirit because it asks you to buy into an idea at the level of your greatest weakness. Who do you not trust? Who do you suspect would let you down? Who really has all of the power? Here's another story, a story you're already familiar with. 
It's a story that ends with the tale of a dead dog and a man in the closet. But this is the true story of what happened the night of the robbery. And I wish I could say this also turned out to be an urban myth, but it's not. I'll leave it for you to decide which story is scarier. In 1982, Beth and I were at a New Year's Eve party. We came home around 2 a.m. When I got to the porch, I got out my key and I noticed there was something strange about our front door. I can't describe what it was other than to say it looked different in the moonlight. But I had a sudden sense of alarm. Again, I have no idea why. But it was well-founded. I opened the door and our entire home had been ransacked. Sofa cushions were torn apart. Chairs were knocked over. All of her clothes were taken out of drawers and thrown under the ground. Beth wanted to run into the bedroom to check her keepsakes. And I suddenly realized whoever did this could still be in the house. And I grabbed Beth. And I told her to stand outside in the yard until I made sure it was safe. She didn't leave, but she did recognize the idea that danger may not be passed. I went down the hallway. I crept into the guest bedroom. It was a shambles. My heart beat as I opened the closet door and looked inside. Nothing. I went back down the hallway to our bedroom. Mattress and box springs were flipped off of the frame. I looked into the backyard. Silence. Just moon, stars, and crickets. And then I heard Beth crying inside the house. I ran back to our bedroom, and she was in tears because her precious locket, the one with the picture of her dog, Chico Bambico, the only man she said she ever loved, the locket she had since I first met her, was gone, as were her grandmother's pearls. I called the police. They told me someone would get there as soon as they could. It was a long and terrifying night as we tried to clean up the mess. In the hallway, I was knee-deep in clutter from her clothes and linens. I picked up an armful of sheets, and something strange caught my eye. I bent down and found what looked like to be three brand new $100 bills. I asked Beth if the money was hers. She said it wasn't. It became part of the mystery. We waited all night. No police came until the next afternoon. The policeman was an older man, maybe I would say in his late 40s, even early 50s. He walked through the house taking notes. We told him about the locket. He asked how much it was worth. Beth said it was invaluable. But if you bought it at a silver shop, maybe only $1,000. He looked at us. He winked at Beth and said, well, I'll write down 2500 Beth mentioned the pearls. He wrote down 5000 Beth said she's sure it wasn't worth that much, but the policeman smiled and said, hey, you've been through enough. You ought to get a little something back. He sat down on the sofa and silently read through his report. His face grew more and more distressed. He said he'd seen a lot of this lately. If I hadn't noticed, there was a huge prostitution business on Santa Monica Boulevard just a few blocks away. That brought a lot of transplanted blacks out here, and unfortunately, they were mainly hookers and pimps. And where there are hookers, there will be drugs, and this break-in looked like the work of a junkie. I pulled out the three new $100 bills I found, and I showed them the police officer. He had a puzzled look on his face, and then he shook his head and said, Well, now I'm sure it's junkies. See, what they do is they hit several houses in a row. They run in. They do what they call a smash and grab. Anything of value, they jam into their coat pockets. Occasionally, they're moving so fast... 
they drop what they just stole from the previous house. I asked if he wanted the money for fingerprints or some kind of evidence. He looked at me as if I was crazy. He said, no, keep it. Then he sat back and asked if he could have a glass of water. Beth got him a drink, and he started talking about how hard the years had been on him. Not just the danger of the work, but now the continual disrespect. The other day, he was called a pig. A pig. It never used to be that way. He started speaking extemporaneously about being a cop and how it turned out to be a lot different than he expected. Beth looked over at me with a, what is going on here look. He talked for almost 40 minutes, then snapped out of it, signed the police report, gave us a copy and left. We continued to pick up the pieces of our shattered sense of safety. Now that I told you that story, how does it make you feel? What alarms went off? Can you spot the invitations, the conspiracies? What if I told you we found out four months later that our policeman was one of the thieves? Several officers of the Hollywood division had run a burglary ring for the last two years. It was easy. They just sat outside of an elementary school in a squad car, noticed the activities of the neighborhood, and when they were sure someone was gone, they would hit who would question a police car sitting in front of someone's house? Here were all the indicators of conspiracy in plain sight. There was the invitation to join at several levels of human weakness, be it at the cultural level. What was my willingness to believe that transplanted blacks were involved with drugs, prostitution, and consequently inviting other crime into the area? And there was a subtler one, the insurance money. Having a man in a position of authority asking us to take part in a false report on the value of stolen property. It actually involved us in the theft. It made us complicit. As sincere as our policeman sounded, he created a world of conspiracy filled with villains in which he was both the victim and the hero. All he needed from us was the final ingredient of any conspiracy, an audience. He was the proof that nightmares happen. Like many real nightmares, they're often hard to appreciate in daylight. But it was no different than the other conspiracies that have built ghettos, launched genocides, and imprisoned souls from the beginning of history. In our case, it was just a small nightmare. It was a bedtime story of a man coming to our rescue. Only it was really fear, pretending to be our savior. During the era of I the Monster, I tried many things to ease my fear of the dark. I tried science in the form of a nightlight. I tried art in the form of good bedtime stories, and eventually I even discovered prayer. I had never prayed in my life. I didn't even know what it was. But in our first grade reader, there was a series of pictures showing what good children did. And this was important to me because besides my fear of the dark, the main stress factor in my life at that time was the naughty and nice list that Santa kept. I just recently had opened my eyes during rest period and had a cookie taken away from me. 
I had to stand in the hall of arts and crafts for using my desk as a set of bongo drums. And just recently, I made my mother cry. I always felt like I was on the verge of falling into the dark side of the ledger and was ready to take the book's suggestions to heart. They said, a good start to the day was you wash your face, you brush your teeth, you comb your hair. You say please and thank you during the day, and you say your prayers at night. I asked Mom what a prayer was. She said, it's when you talk to God. Well, I wasn't really sure this was the right thing to do. I was already scared of Santa. In the book, they had a picture of a very clean blonde boy kneeling in his pajamas beside his bed with his hands folded, and I showed the picture to Mom and said, this is what I wanted to do. After dinner, I got all dressed up for bed. I knelt down and asked Mom, what do you say when you say a prayer? Mom thought about it, and she said, well, I know this one. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I was horrified. This is what I was supposed to say to feel better? This was as bad as the bad fairy tales. I would rather spend my time with I the monster. If I should die before I wake, was that really a possibility? That was the last time I said that prayer. And my fear increased. Now I was sure I was going to be on the naughty list, thank you, or die in my sleep. So under this cloak of dark circumstances, I encountered my first conspiracy theory in my life. The collusion between mom, dad, and Santa Claus. We were Jewish, and by all rights, we should not have celebrated Christmas. Also, we didn't have a chimney, which should have made any Santa contact problematic. But we lived in Oak Cliff, home to exactly three Jewish families. And my mother and father were very sensitive to the issues of anti-Semitism that existed in the world. We were fearful that other children would taunt us if we appeared different. But secretly, I think they were afraid of our being different, whether we were taunted or not. You see, different was not something that was considered good back in the late 50s. Different was not the proud banner we wave today. Back then, being different had to be remedied. And that could mean anything from being told you had cooties by classmates to having doctors administer shock treatments and lobotomies. Mom and Dad decided to go with the Santa scenario and give us presents on Christmas morning. That way we wouldn't have to feel like outcasts at school. However, it wasn't going to be just as simple as celebrating Christmas in the good old-fashioned non-religious, strictly commercial way with the tree, present songs, and hot cocoa. Mom felt very guilty that she was betraying her Jewish roots. So as a compromise, we would have no tree, and in its place, with a thought process that still baffles me to this day, we got our presents under the dining room table. Like all children, we were up at dawn on Christmas morning. We raced into the dining room, started crawling in between the chairs under the table, looking in the dark for presents that had our name on them, occasionally banging our heads on the hard mahogany. I remember once when I was four, I mustered up the courage to ask Mom the really tough questions I was afraid to ask before. What was Santa going to do? We had no chimney. Mom said she put a note out for Santa just to use the back door. This disturbed me. It meant either we were leaving our house unlocked, which seemed unsafe, or that Santa had our key, which seemed creepy. 
Then I asked, what was Santa going to do without a tree? And mom said, Santa was fine putting the presents under the table. And I said, but why? Why? Why would Santa want to crawl under the table to put the presents there? That was a lot of extra work for him. Mom said that Santa didn't mind the extra work. He just didn't want us to feel different by not having our presents under something. I said, Mom, we're still different. No other kid gets their presents under the dining room table. And the kids who have trees don't really crawl under the tree to get the presents. The presents are around the tree. Mom paused to reflect and then did what most people who rely on the conspiracy theory as a basis for their reality. She passed the blame on down the line. She said, Steppy Doors, we wrote Santa about the chimney and the tree, and he said, leave the door unlocked. He would leave the presents under the table. I don't know why. That's what he said. That's where he said he wanted to leave them. Sidebar. I should note Steppy Doors was what mom called me most of the time when I was little. I liked it. It was kind of cute and was a natural play on the name Stephen. The other pet name she called me was just Odd. It was the Mayor of Pachuch. I have no idea where that came from. Who he was, how he got to be mayor, I don't know. It sounds like some relic from Eastern Europe in centuries past, lost forever to the ever-flowing sands of time. So mom's passing of the buck back to Santa worked for a while, or at least until I was five and in first grade. But my nagging doubts were troubling me deeply, and I had no one to talk to about it. Until one afternoon, right after school, before the Christmas holidays. It was a sunny, cold December day. I was heading over to Doherty's Drugstore to read comic books before I walked the half a mile home. Yes, in that era, first graders walked home a lot. As they say, it was a completely different world. And I heard a classmate call out, hey, Stephen, where are you going? And I turned around, and to my surprise, it was Dwayne. Now, I didn't usually talk or play with Dwayne. In fact, this was the only time in my life I ever spoke to him one-on-one. -on -one. He didn't live in our neighborhood. He was a very special kid. He had already turned six. And I imagined him to be a much wiser fellow than I. He was handsome. He always made good grades. The teachers liked him. He never got in trouble. And he was awarded best citizen for the entire first grade. He was given a blue ribbon by our school, and today he was wearing his ribbon, pinned on a sweater. It was flapping in the cold wind. I was shocked he wanted to join me. Frankly, I was a little starstruck. As we walked, Dwayne asked me if I was looking forward to Christmas, and I gave him my enthusiastic but highly conflicted, sure. Dwayne paused and looked off in the distance, and then he turned back to me and said very seriously, that he believed in Christmas, but wasn't sure he still believed in Santa. I couldn't believe it. A fellow skeptic. I never told him about the presence under my dining room table, but I swallowed hard and told him that I was on the fence about Santa myself. He nodded respectfully and said, yeah, it's hard not to have doubts. I mentioned to Duane that last year I thought I heard something on the roof. I thought it could have been a sleigh, but we didn't have a chimney. Duane shook his head and said, no, no, if you don't have a chimney, Santa won't stop on the roof. It probably was a squirrel. I said, probably. We stopped at the curb. Duane looked both ways for approaching traffic, and I blurted out, Duane, 
I just really want to believe in Santa. And he turned back to me. He walked up, he put his hands on my shoulders, and he said, I know, Stephen, me too. But it's always easier to want to believe in something than it is to say it never was true. I was staggered by the profundity of that remark. Duane looked off for a moment and then turned back to me and smiled and said, Don't get me wrong. I love Santa, but this will probably be the last year I believe. I always have remembered this exchange. For years, I thought it's because it's the only real talk I ever had about the Santa crisis. But as I look back in a very innocent way, Duane and I were in the grip of all of the elements that make up any conspiracy. The doubt we sensed. The feeling we weren't getting the straight story. This is the very machinery conspiracy runs on. Conspiracy theories are based on an alternate explanation of the natural world. They don't always have to make sense. We end up looking for reindeers on the roof instead of squirrels. The ultimate casualty, as Duane put it sadly, was our ability to believe. Earlier this year, I went back to Dallas. It was near the anniversary of Mom's passing, which is always a hard time. A trip back home would give me a chance to see Dad, to reminisce with my brother and sister, and give me another opportunity to sleep on my unsleepable bed, the collapsed, crooked one I had as a child. When the salesman told Mom and Dad the bed would last a lifetime, they took him at his word. Besides the swapping of stories and visiting all-you-can-eat restaurants, the trip to Dallas always held the potential of discovery in a sort of archaeological way. Brief explanation. Over the years, Mom saved everything and tucked them away in the most improbable places to keep them safe. After she passed away, it became painfully apparent that she never left a map. On one visit, I happened to find the big white Bible I used to read on weekends when I was a graduate student in Illinois. Now, I hadn't seen it in over 30 years. I found it in the linen closet under some sheets and pillows. Once I found the electric football game my brother and I always used to play and a board game called Money, Money, Money that we never used to play being used to prop up one corner of my bed. I'm sure mom's reasoning was it was better to use money, money, money to hold up the bed than to spend money, money, money to buy a new screw. On this visit, I found a big manila envelope at the bottom of my underwear drawer under a pair of pajamas last worn when I was in junior high school. I pulled out the envelope and opened it. I couldn't believe my eyes. It was an edition of our elementary school newspaper, the Jefferson Davis News. I looked through the little paper, and there on one of the back pages was a picture of our first grade class taken in front of the school. I studied it, and there was Duane, sitting next to me with his best citizen ribbon pinned onto a shirt. It's the only picture I have of him. I wrote Duane's words in the margin out of fear that one day I would forget them. It had an unexpected effect. I looked at the picture of all those five-year-old faces standing in front of Jefferson Davis Elementary, surrounded by the words, it's always easier to want to believe in something than it is to say it never was true. And it became a very grim school motto. Duane's proverb explained the root of all conspiracies and all racism. It warned about the existence of false prophets and the mechanism they used to enter their lives. 
I put the little paper down on my little broken bedside table and turned out the light. As I began to drift off, I had a passing thought that we often find things when we need them. Maybe all the scraps of paper Mom had saved over the years weren't a product of her nuttiness at all, but were meant for me to find every now and again as a sort of amulet of protection. Truth operates in an opposite curve from conspiracy. The further one gets from conspiracy, the more preposterous it looks. Distance only gives truth more clarity. I sat up in the dark and looked at the picture again. I saw something new. Buried in Duane's words were also hope. There was also the promise of renewal, and it was an explanation of the science of second chances. I was suddenly startled by a night noise, which I now recognize as the central heat kicking in. Knowledge is the ultimate protection against the dark. And I admit that I laughed when I realized my first thought was to wonder how I, the monster, was doing. I lay back down and I closed my eyes. In an instant, I was once again with Duane, about to cross the street on that cold afternoon before Christmas. He smiled at me. He put his hand on my shoulder. And once again, I felt like I was in one of the good bedtime stories. I went to sleep, and I had pleasant dreams. That was The Man in the Closet, a series of stories by Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, why don't you tell people how they can find more of your work on the internet this week? Best place they can get me is at tobolowskyfiles.com. You'll find everything you need to get a hold of me there. And you can find me and everything else I do at slashfilm.com. So stay tuned to the radio or to your podcast feed for more episodes of The Tobolowsky Files next time. We'll see you guys then. Bye-bye.